You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. People are beginning to wake up to the downside of the tech world. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We need to find ways to share this wealth so that people aren't suffering on the streets. You're giving your time to help others, and in the process, it helps you as well. The more people who see what happens over in the courthouse and know what's really going on, people would really be horrified. This is KCBS In-Depth. In this American democracy of ours, few things matter more than the final vote count in an election. No matter what pollsters thought was going to happen, no matter what pundits argued should happen, who wins and who loses ultimately depends on how many ballots were cast and for whom. But what happens when us Americans start questioning whether or not we can trust that final tally? I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And our guest today on the program has been raising alarms about the growing distrust in our election system and making the case that more safeguards for that system are needed. That guest is author and UC Irvine law professor Rick Hassan, and he's here to talk about his new book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Uh, He joins us now. Uh, Professor Hassan, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. It's great to be with you. So obviously, this is a very timely conversation. We are coming off of Super Tuesday here in California. There was a couple of bumps in the road in that story on that very Super Tuesday. And so I want to get to a lot of that with you in just a second. But before we get to that, I do not want to breeze by that title, Election Meltdown. That's a pretty big word to be using about elections, meltdown. Tell us a little bit about why you chose that word meltdown. What are some of the scenarios you're worried about? Sure. Well, I can say that uh, my book had the fortuity of coming out the day after the Iowa debacle, Mm. uh, when there was no good counting, uh, no results announced, because uh, there were problems with uh, how the vote totals were recorded. And so my book, Election Meltdown, is really a call for people to pay attention to the rules that we use to conduct our elections, to recognize that People's confidence in the process is uh, going down, it's plummeting, and we need to take steps now before November to try to shore up people's confidence that votes are going to be fairly and accurately counted. And what are some of the threats that you think voters should be more aware of? Well, so Iowa demonstrates that uh, there are pockets of incompetence in running elections. Something we saw on Super Tuesday was that even in places that have been planning for a long time, like Los Angeles County, they had lines of three or four hours on Election Day. So incompetence uh, can undermine people's confidence. Uh, The fights over voter fraud and voter suppression can undermine confidence. The kind of dirty tricks we saw the Russians doing in 2016, as well as uh, other forms of uh, chicanery and dirty tricks can undermine confidence. And finally, there's a, an, uh, an accelerated uh, incendiary rhetoric about elections, about elections being stolen, about elections being rigged. We hear that a lot. And I think that makes people think, well, why should I even bother voting if the system is already set up to predetermine a winner or a loser? Right. And it's almost this vicious cycle, because on the one hand, you are raising these concerns about the potential for problems in these elections. But then on the other hand, if we talk about these threats irresponsibly, then we're kind of creating the the, the same result that we're worried about. We're creating that distrust. And it seems to me that a through line throughout the book that you've written is your overriding concern is that fundamental trust in the system. And why it is that that trust is so needed for the system to work. So tell us a little bit about why that is sort of the animating concern, that issue of trust. Sure. And I recognize that calling a book election meltdown sounds the alarms, but I'm trying to sound the alarms because 
Now we're, you know, about eight months before the election. It's not a month before the election. There's still steps that can be taken, and we can mm. talk about what those steps might be. But when you think about how a democracy works, I mean, we usually don't think about this in any kind of detail. But we it, just it, take it for granted. It, 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 well, it depends on the losers accepting the results and saying, I fought hard, and next time we'll try and do better. Uh, when George W. Bush handed over power to Barack Obama in January 2009, nobody thought, well, is Bush going to hold on to power? Uh, is that not going to happen? And yet today, uh, when I travel around the country talking about my book, people are saying, well, what if Trump loses and doesn't leave office? And the fact that we're even having conversations like that demonstrates to me how much things have deteriorated in the last decade or so. Uh, you know, when, when people are saying elections are stolen, when people are saying that they don't believe in uh, the results of the election, then that undermines our very democracy. And so that's the kind of issue I want to talk about now, uh, while we can still try and take steps to make people uh, more confident. And of course, the number one step in making people more confident is having elections run in a fair and transparent way. Mm. And so when we're talking about something like Russian meddling, for example, even if it didn't necessarily have a major impact on how many people voted or how people cast their votes, just knowing that that meddling occurred erodes that fundamental trust, and that causes big problems. Sure. And it wasn't just the misinformation. One of the things that the Russians did uh, was to uh, probe around the voter registration databases in all 50 states. They didn't uh, change anything and we have no indication that it affected election outcomes. But when people hear that the Russians are breaking into our voting systems, uh, that is concerning. Uh, and when people uh, are being flooded with misinformation, uh, then they don't know who to trust. And so I think it contributes to an overall decline in the public's confidence in the process, even if there's no indication that you know someone's hacking into the voting machines or something as extreme as that is going on. Right. Well, let's turn our attention to what just happened on Super Tuesday here in California. California is a state that has been scrutinized in the past. Our President Trump has questioned whether or not there were millions of illegal votes cast in California back in 2016 without evidence. And then uh, former Speaker Paul Ryan called the votes in 2018 bizarre. Uh, election system, I, I suppose, broke uh, away from Republicans late in the process. We had lots of late ballots coming in, broke not in the Republican favor, and he found that quite bizarre. So we do have a system that has come under quite a bit of scrutiny in the past. Uh, how did we do on Tuesday? Well, so let me, I think there's two points there. One is, uh, there's the actuality of how votes are counted, and votes are counted, I think, pretty in a pretty uh, uh, competent way in California. Uh, but the other is about how those votes are reported. And so when you see, for example, reporting today that 100% of precincts have been counted, but yet there are still millions of lost ballots, uh, excuse me, but there are still millions of uncounted ballots, mm -hmm. then that uh, you know confuses the public. And what do you mean the 100% are in and, and yet the vote totals are changing? And one of the things we did notice in 2018 is that um, those later counted ballots, at least in California, tend to be ballots cast for Democrats. And so we saw seven uh, races in Southern California shift in the congressional side from Republicans in the lead to Democrats ultimately taking uh, the, that uh, place. And so you really want to think about how do we educate the public that California's voting is slow and takes time. Right. And and when we talk about the late-breaking ballots sort of going in favor of Democrats, that has a lot to do with who are the people that tend to vote late, have mail-in ballots? Right. So it's who, who tends to vote late. It used to be in California that Republicans were much more um, interested in using absentee balloting, vote by mail. Now there's been a shift, and especially uh, with some changes in California law that allow 
uh, the collection of absentee ballots, so-called ballot harvesting. Uh, you can go around, you can send campaign volunteers to go and pick up ballots from uh, people once they voted. Uh, that was an effort that Democrats made much more than Republicans and got those late-counted ballots to the polls, and that helped to explain the shift. Uh, Paul Ryan said that it was bizarre that the numbers had changed, but if he knew anything about how California actually voted, uh, he would not have been uh, so surprised or, or he would not have expressed such surprise. Right. But I, but I do think that, you know, if we go back and think about Super Tuesday, there were places in California where there were problems. I live in Los Angeles County, and there there were numerous problems uh, with people uh, waiting long times, in some cases three or four or more hours to vote. And that was because uh, in Los Angeles County, as in much of California, there were a number of changes made. We switched to a smaller number of voting places, voting centers. We switched new voting machines, new electronic poll books, and people could register with same-day voter registration at the polling place. All of this created bottlenecks, and I hope and I expect that there's going to be um, a study to figure out what exactly went wrong so that in November people will not have this kind of wait. Mm, right. Many of those changes were statewide changes. Some of those changes had to do with the Vo Voters' Choice Act, which has been adopted by some, but not not all counties. Here in the Bay Area, San Mateo and Santa Clara counties have adopted it. And uh, so we saw some new changes coming to our system here in the Bay Area as well. Is your sense, I mean, there were concerns raised about the L.A. vote before it even happened. Is your sense that do we have any sense of why the preparations weren't enough? Because we, we, we knew this going into it, that there was potential for these problems to come up. Well, I think one issue was, I think there was a, a, a not the pattern of voting that we expected. I think that L.A. County expected more people to vote early. And in part, I think they didn't because it takes a while for people to understand that there is early voting. That's not something that we had on a wide scale in, in Los Angeles before this. Uh, but also, a lot of people were waiting to see the results of the South Carolina uh, uh, Democratic presidential primary. Uh, should they vote for Joe Biden? Should they vote for someone else? And so those late-breaking votes uh, tended to create this bottleneck. Um, so I think that's part of it. The other thing is, in every other uh, jurisdiction in California that's adopted a vote center model, where you got get rid of the local polling place and consolidate, but uh, to the to a smaller number of places that are open longer. In all of those other jurisdictions besides Los Angeles, people were automatically sent an absentee ballot. In Los Angeles, they were not, and mm. uh, that I think was done to save money. Los Angeles is the largest election jurisdiction in the country, but I think that that's a state law, and I think that that maybe needs to change. I think Los mm. Angeles maybe does need to send that ballot uh, a ballot to every. Los Angeles voter. And I think we're going to see many more people voting by mail. Uh, my guess is that people are going to have an easier time deciding how they're going to vote in the general election uh, than they did in deciding how they're going to vote in the Democratic primary if they were participating in that primary. All right. So there's an election fix for you right there. We're going to have more for you later in the program. But first, real quick, I want to remind listeners that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, we're discussing voting vulnerabilities ahead of the 2020 election. Helping us along is UC Irvine law professor Rick Hassan, whose new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. So we've just kind of outlined a couple of problems that we saw on election night Tuesday here in California. Qualify as an election meltdown? What should we be taking away from this experience we just had going into the much bigger 2020 uh, election in the fall? 
Well, I don't think that this was a meltdown. We do know that we're going to have a winner and a loser. And although people had to wait a, a, an inexcusably long period of time to vote in some uh, parts of Los Angeles and in isolated other parts of California, uh, we are going to know a winner and a loser. And I don't think anyone has uh, cast any doubt on the integrity of how the election was conducted. Uh, unlike Iowa, where they're still fighting over what the vote totals actually were. Uh, I think I, the Iowa debacle counts as an election meltdown. And I should point out that uh, the Iowa caucuses are run by a political party, the Iowa Democratic Party. They're not run by Iowa election officials. And so I'm not concerned that there's going to be a problem in Iowa in November, even though the caucuses were being run uh, in a poor way, because it's a totally different uh, authority running the election. In most places in the country, election administrators do a very good job with limited resources. Uh, but as we saw on Super Tuesday in Texas, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, one jurisdiction, people waited up to seven hours. Hours. And so really, uh, the best practice is you know, people should not have to wait for more than 30 minutes. And I hope that steps are being taken to ensure that that uh, doesn't uh, uh, repeat itself in November. Yeah, yeah. Let's dig into a couple of the concerns that you've already discussed uh, at length so far in the interview, but let's dig a little bit further into them. Uh, the first being the concern over voter suppression and the various laws that have been passed that in effect, are making it hard for many people to vote. So when you talk about voter suppression, what are you talking about? So we have seen this pattern almost exclusively in Republican states where laws are passed that make it harder for people to register and to vote. And uh, while these laws are passed in the name of preventing voter fraud or promoting public confidence, uh, the evidence I adduce in election meltdown shows that neither of these um, uh, purported reasons uh, actually support these laws. And so, for example, in Kansas, they tried to promote a documentary proof of citizenship law. You had to provide a birth certificate or a naturalization certificate before you were allowed to vote. And uh, that law was challenged, and uh, there was a trial in a federal court in Kansas. And uh, Chris Kobach, who was the Secretary of State of Kansas, who's a big believer in these kinds of laws, said that the amount of uh, non-citizen voting he had proven was the, quote, tip of the iceberg. And the federal district court judge who looked at all the evidence, who gave Kobach the chance to make his case, said there was no iceberg. There was only an icicle, and it was made up mostly of administrative errors. So when you actually look at these claims of voter fraud that support these restrictive laws, there is no good evidence to support them. And these fights end up undermining both sides' confidence. Democrats believe that Republicans are trying to suppress the vote, and Republicans believe that Democrats are out committing voter fraud. Now, it's not clear that these laws suppress as many votes as Democrats believe, but they certainly seem to be intended uh, to accomplish that. And I think it just further increases people's mistrust in the system. Hmm. Well, that is an argument that you do hear from Republicans sometimes, that votes are not being suppressed in many of these elections. They point to the example of 2018, where, you know, a lot of concerns about voter suppression and these laws were uh, raised. But we did see an increase in turnout in 2018 and even uh, an increase in turnout among many minority voters. So if we're seeing an increase in turnout, does that undercut the f concern about voter suppression? I don't think it does for a few reasons. First, turnout is uh, a very difficult thing to understand. And so maybe turnout would have gone up even more if there were not suppressive measures. And there are countermeasures that are taken. But also, thinking back to that uh, law in Kansas that I mentioned a few minutes ago, the documentary proof of citizenship law, we know that 30,000 people had their voter registrations suspended. They could not register. They could not vote without producing that piece of paper. And they would not have been allowed to vote uh, had a federal court not come in and intervened in the process. Uh, so while I do think that there's a lot of exaggeration on the Democratic side about how 
much some of these laws, like voter ID laws, actually suppress the vote. I would put my focus on a different question. I would ask, why does the state get to make it harder for otherwise eligible voters to get to register and to vote? And so you really need to ask, is this law serving any legitimate purpose? And so far as I can tell, most of these laws that are passed that make it harder to register and vote seem to be aimed at suppressing the vote rather than aimed at preventing fraud, even if they don't always have a suppressive effect. So on that theme of inflammatory language and the distrust that it engenders after these hotly fought elections, let's return to the 2018 election in Georgia for governor that put Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams. It remind us a little bit about why that election became so controversial. Since then, Stacey Abrams has been raising concerns about the election integrity and the, the laws and the management that Brian Kemp had. Uh, he was a secretary of state at the time, so oversaw the election. Remind us, what were the concerns about that election? So uh, Kemp was both the secretary of state of um, Georgia, meaning he's the chief election officer, and he was a candidate for office for governor. So he was both running and running in the elections. So that's already a conflict of interest, but is that that is a, that, that's a very common pattern in the United States. Oh, is that, is that, I was, I was going to ask, is that common? It is very common, and it's very rare that someone would recuse that, you know, from running their own election. And uh, Kemp and, uh, and, and the Georgia legislature engaged in a, a number of different practices, including voter purges and uh, passing a law that required that your voter registration information be an exact match to your official government information. So, for example, if you have a hyphenated name and the hyphen was missing, you might not be able to vote. There were a lot of lawsuits. Uh, one of the worst things that Kemp did was uh, uh, three days before the election on the state Secretary of State's official website, he falsely accused the Democratic Party of hacking into the state voter registration database, when in fact what Democrats had done is they had received a tip that the voter registration database was insecure, and they brought it to the attention of computer scientists who went to national security officials to make sure that it was secured. And here he was accusing people of... Um, accusing Democrats of interfering in the election to cover up his own negligence in running his voter registration database. Mm. And yet, I'm still very critical of Stacey Abrams mm -hmm. because uh, she narrowly lost the election and uh, uh, she came pretty close to calling the election stolen. She refused to call uh, Kemp the legitimate governor of Georgia. You had others who went further, like um, Sherrod Brown, a uh, U.S. Senator from Ohio who said the election was stolen. I would really reserve the stolen election rhetoric for when you can actually prove that an election was stolen. And that's for two reasons. One, I think it undermines people's confidence and uh, makes people doubt the, the, the fairness of the process. And second, it gets you into a debate over whether there's enough proof. And I think in this case, there was not enough proof that those suppressive things that Kemp did actually affected the outcome of the election. Again, I would put my focus on the dignity of each voter and ask, why is the state of Georgia making it harder for otherwise eligible voters to register and vote? I think what Abrams did after the election has been much better. She has brought a lawsuit uh, her, with her group Fair Fight, uh, trying to uh, challenge these laws as suppressing votes for no good reason. I think litigation is a good thing. I think calling what he said suppressive is a good thing, but I think it's too far to start calling an election stolen when you don't have proof that an election was actually altered because of these kinds of measures. All right, so let's uh, dig into that point just a little bit more in one second. First, for the last time, I want to remind listeners that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I, once again, I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the show, elections. They are big, they're complicated, 
and it's really important to get them right. But the threats to their integrity just seem to be growing. Explaining those threats to us right now and helping us find solutions, we'll be getting to those solutions in just a second, is UC Irvine law professor Rick Hassan, whose new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and The Threat to American Democracy. So just to tie that last point up in a bow, it sounds like you have a concern that the rhetoric that some Democrats are using following these closely fought elections, suggesting that the suppression equates to election stealing, that could lead to some of the distrust that we're talking about as well. Yes. And of course, it's not just Democrats doing this. President Trump notoriously claimed that there were three to five million uh, fraudulent votes all cast for his opponent in the 2016 election, the same number of votes that were uh, the margin by which uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. There was absolutely no evidence to support this. Uh, so Trump is one of the worst offenders. So I, I'm not singling out Democrats at all, but I do think that everyone needs to be very careful in terms of the rhetoric they use to talk about elections, uh, you know, lest they, you know, we get into the position where, where people start believing, well, I shouldn't even bother to vote because uh, this kind of um, system is so rigged that it just is pointless. Mm. Now, let's discuss the part of all this that you term dirty tricks. And I think that this is, is probably the bit that our listeners would be most familiar thinking about because we've been talking about Russian meddling in the 2016 election for several years now. But your book suggests that, putting the question of the results of that meddling aside uh, for one second, your book suggests that one of the, the biggest scenarios that we should be worried about it looks a lot more like hacking into the power grid or hacking into critical infrastructure. What does that have to do with elections? Sure. So, you know, uh, we've taken a lot of steps to, nationally to try to deal with the problems we saw in 2016. So the social media companies are dealing with misinformation and uh, the Department of Homeland Security is helping state and local election officials to make sure that voter registration databases are not going to be broken into again. But, you know, we can't think about just fighting the last war. We have to think, well, what could happen this time through? And one of my concerns is when we think about what it takes to successfully run an election, it's not just the election machines and the um, voter registration rolls. It's also our general infrastructure. So if the power goes out in Detroit or Milwaukee on Election Day, you know, think of a Democratic city in a swing state, the lights are out. Even if you've got paper and pencil at the polling place to allow people to vote, if there's no power for the electronic voting machines, well, then uh, what if people can't get to the polling place because um, uh, with the power out, uh, you know, the people can't get through the streets, people mm -hmm. are going to stay home. And so we don't have in place a good plan a good plan b in a lot of states you know do you redo the election? Do you redo the election in the whole state? You know what are the rules going to be and so one of the things that's I'm a really disquieting moment in your book when you point out what do you do when the election doesn't go well? There is no plan b we don't have and, and I thought about it I'm like, oh you're right, we don't have a plan b well, so some states have uh rules on the books mm -hmm. uh, for what to do, for example, Florida has good rules about hurricanes because mm -hmm. that's a problem. Uh, it, it would be good, you know, California's got the risk of earthquakes, it would be good to have, you know, rules here. But for a national election for president, it's a little bit different. It's the only election we conduct on a national scale. Mm. And what happens in Detroit can affect what happens in the entire country. And so it might be that we need some congressional 
uh, legislation to think about, well, what happens if there is a terrorist attack or a natural disaster? What if coronavirus keeps people away from the polls? You know, we really need to be thinking about contingency planning right now because we don't know exactly what's coming down the pike. And it's so much better to have rules in place before an election is actually conducted. Because if you try and come up with the rules after the election's actually happened and there's been a problem, then everyone's going to ask, well, who's going to benefit from that rule? So if you decide to extend voting in Detroit another day, well, that might benefit the Democrat. We shouldn't be in a position of thinking like that now. You know, what if the power outages in the panhandle of Florida, that could benefit Republicans? Let's have our, our rules now before we know who might benefit or not benefit from a plan B. Yeah. And then let's also talk about the actual hacking of election machines. We hear a lot about that, especially as more election machines go digital. How big of a concern is that? Well, I think that, you know, any machine, any computer, I understand from computer scientists, if, if you can write a program for it, it can be hacked. You know, there's no hack-proof machine. And so the answer is having systems in place to detect any potential hacks. So, for example, um, it's believed that the gold standard by, by computer scientists is hand-marked paper ballots. And so uh, you go into the polling place, you're given a number two pencil, you bubble in the circle for the candidate that you want. And then these are scanned and optical scan machines, which could be hacked, right? It's always a potential. But then you do post-election audits to make sure that the amount of uh, uh, the number of votes that are, are reported by the machines matches what a sample of a recount would tell you. So there are things that can be done uh, to ensure that um, uh, there are humans able to verify the vote. I'm concerned about new voting machines that use barcodes if there's no way for a human to verify because we can't look at a barcode and know uh, what it's representing. And so really, as election administrators are thinking about new voting systems, they need to think not just about the technology itself, but about how people will trust the technology. And there needs to be some way for human beings to confirm what actual votes, uh, vote totals are. So uh, a big problem, but perhaps something that is uh, surmountable. I guess in the last couple of minutes that we have, what I'd really like to get to is what would you hope that voters keep in mind going into the 2020 election in terms of how we can make this upcoming election as secure as possible? What should we be thinking about in the coming months? Well, there's lots of things that voters can do. One is be careful about spreading misinformation. If you see a story that uh, aligns with your political views that seems too good to be true, maybe think before you share that with other people. Figure out if it's actually true or just something that uh, somebody's trying to uh, get you to believe. Uh, second, our, you know, our, we don't run a single election for president. We run something like eight or 9,000 elections in this country. It's very localized it's on the county or sub-county level. But that means that you can have input as an individual voter into what the voting procedures are going to be in your county. So find out what your county is doing. Are they going to be transparent? How are they going to audit their voting machines to ensure for us that vote totals are accurate. What's the time frame going to be? Can you go and observe uh, voting? So there's a lot you could actually do uh, to ensure that the vote counting, at least that's happening in your area, is being done in a fair and transparent way. Hmm. How are you feeling about the 2020 election? What are your expectations in terms of how well it's going to go? Do you foresee an election meltdown? Well, what I what I'd like to analogize this to is uh, imagine that you're a uh, an operator of a nuclear power plant. Uh, you can foresee all the ways that there could be a, a meltdown of the core. And your job is to think about all the different things you can do to try to minimize that risk. Because even if there's a small chance of something happening, you don't want that to happen. So I guess the short answer to your question is, I see a lot of risks out there, and I'm hoping that we can mitigate some of those risks before we get to November.
All right. Uh, treat it like a nuclear reactor. Let's uh, keep this thing humming along, everybody. We have been speaking today to UC Irvine Law Professor Rick Hassan, whose new book, once again, is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Professor Hassan, thanks for joining KCBS In-Depth. It's been a pleasure. And for KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.